Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity to come together and to worship you and listen to your word and ask you to guide and lead us as we go through this section of the scriptures. And we just thank you that you love us so much and that you died for us so that we can be able to spend eternity with you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We left off with the rapture verses that, that uh, the dead in Christ would rise first and then, the, then those who are alive would meet him in the sky. Uh, and that chapter 4 ended with, Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Uh, so we're going to look at chapter 5. And it says, But of the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord is so, the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. And when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as a woman as, that travails with a child, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in the darkness that the day should overtake you as a thief. You are all children of the light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us... Not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that are drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and the love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another even as you do. So we're going to look at this section here. Started out with the rapture. Then he goes into beginning to say, but. All right. So he's continuing the same topic, but he's bringing in a new, new topic. He says, but of the times and seasons, brethren, we have no need of the, to write unto you. What times and seasons? The day of the Lord. Okay, when Jesus will come back, Satan rules, and when Satan, uh, when Jesus rules after Satan has been there, he goes, you know perfectly well that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. And this is what Jesus had told the disciples over and over. In Matthew uh, 24, 3 through 31, he told them that he would come, and nobody would know the time. Uh, Acts 1, 7 told us that God the Father knows the time. Second uh, Peter 3.10 says, The day of the Lord shall be as a thief of the night. This is something that's very important. And in our day, it's getting very popular to predict when Jesus is coming. There's been a lot of them over the last uh, probably 100 years. There's always been people who predicted when Jesus would come. But over the last 100 years, there's been several groups and, and people that have tried to predict you know, and they're very funny because they'll go through the scriptures and they'll lift scriptures out and, and pull them out of context and they'll say this, 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 and, and they'll sound very convincing. But if you're listening to somebody and they're telling you they know exactly when Jesus is coming, they're lying. Plain and simple, they're lying. Uh, now we know the season, we know the signs, and we know that we're getting closer. All right? But with the revival, all those signs and everything could fall apart. We, we expect Jesus to return any day, any moment, but it could be a long time away yet, and we don't know. And if you find somebody telling you otherwise, don't listen to them. <laughs> they're, they're not following the right, the right things to do. Uh, not only that, well, they were saying peace and safety and sudden destruction will fall upon them. This is one of the things, if you listen to some of the pastors now, with, the, with this new accord in Jerusalem with many of the Middle Eastern nations, there's people saying, is this a fulfillment of this verse? Uh, Jerusalem being able to say safety, not as many nations trying to attack them at the moment. It's kind of an interesting world that we live in because we see a number of things coming together. We see people demanding a one world government. In, in ways that have never happened before. We're seeing a cashless society for all practical purposes. We're seeing violence in a, and, and uh, people calling bad good and good bad, you know, and seeing extreme violence. I mean, it, there have been times of violence similar to what America's been going through, 
but almost not as bad as what we're going through. The civil rights movement had a lot of violence in it. The Vietnam, the anti-Vietnam movement had a lot of violence in it, but it wasn't the kind of violence that we're seeing today, night after night after night after night, and constant violence. Now we've had violent conflicts. So, you know, one thing we always know is that there's nothing new under the sun. So nothing new is happening. It's just the level of what's happening, it seems to be on the uptick. And Paul says here, they're saying peace and safety. This is what Jesus said, beware. When the Antichrist comes, flee from Jerusalem. You won't have time to go pack. You won't have time to, to gather food. He says, get out of Jerusalem and flee. Pray that it's not in the winter so that you can get out quickly. And we see this idea of safety. When the Antichrist starts his rule, he will start it with a peace treaty with, with uh, Israel. And Jerusalem will have the first time in peace in a long, long time, or at least apparent peace, until he stands up in the temple and says, I'm God, worship me. And then all of a sudden they will realize they've been tricked. And we're not quite there yet. I don't think this peace treaty is that big, <laughs> is that peace treaty. I'm not trying to say Trump is the Antichrist in name, but he's leading into this whole process. What were you gonna say, Sharon? Huh? Okay. But we do have some treaties coming that are gonna be peaceful, bring peace to the total war-torn area. And it's kind of an amazing thing. Jesus said there'd be wars and rumors of wars. And it's been old now, but I did research back about two years ago and found out there were 220 active wars going on in this world. You know, and what do we keep saying? Everybody keeps saying we're at peace. There's no big deal, you know, before, before all this COVID stuff, but we're at peace. There's no, nothing big going on. And, and there's wars everywhere in this world. We just don't hear about most of them. And you know, this is the sad thing. We are at a time when everybody's yelling peace, everybody's crying peace. Uh, our world is looking at Christian and say, you guys are the troublemakers, you're not willing to accept us. Uh, they're out to get the Christians because we won't say that they're okay. We're having all these problems going on and it looks like we're at the end days. Again, we're praying for revival. I'd love to see revival. I'd love to see God push out a hundred years or so for revival reasons. I don't hold that very high on my, <laughs> on my uh, hopes, but you know, we're praying for it so God can do it. And on that side, I say, yes, God, thank you. You can do this. But he says that destruction will come suddenly as on a woman who enters into travail or birth pains. <laughs> and Anybody who's been around any mother who's given birth knows how quick those come on. You're going out to dinner and the next thing you're at the hospital. Uh, you're go going to bed for a good night's sleep and the next thing you're at the ho hospital. They come on quickly. Now that woman knows that she's gonna go into uh, labor pains sooner, sooner or later. She even knows approximately when those pains are going to start. But still, when the pains hit, it is a total shock. Our world is waiting for that event. We're getting closer and closer. And it will hit in a way that will be a total shock. And you know, I think about this because I also think about how death hits. You're going along, the family's going along, and all of a sudden, somebody's dead. You know, somebody in the church is dead. Somebody in the family is dead. Somebody that you know is dead. You know, and the person who died had plans. Usually, they probably had plans for that evening. They had plans for the next day. They had plans to go to the doctor, the, you know, go, go wherever, a trip, whatever. They had lots of plans, and then all of a sudden, they don't have plans because they're standing before God for judgment. And this is what he's, Paul is telling us. We don't have to tell you about this. You know about all the signs. You know about the, this coming events that are, that are there. Uh, you know, they lived in a time when Rome claimed to have peace in all the world. 
Now, Rome had battles everywhere, but they, they said that they were peace. And it's known as a peaceful time through the Roman Empire, unless you were on the outskirts of Rome. Um, but they had a lot of peace. So Paul's actually telling them, you know, hey, be careful. This, is, this, this whole thing can end real soon. And he says it can happen. He goes, but you are not in the dark that the day overtake you as a thief. This is the statement that keeps going on. Jesus said, if you knew when the thief was going to come in, you'd have been standing guard waiting for the thief. You know, all right, thief, you're coming in at exactly 1.10 a.m. I'll be, I'll be waiting for you. you know, the thief does not announce that they're coming in, if they're smart. Uh, and Jesus says, I've told you all these signs. And the beauty of this is when Jesus came the first time, all the signs were there. John the Baptist was calling, calling out that he's going to be born. The, the, he's, the, the child is born in, in Bethlehem. He raises up, and people still never believed in the, the Jewish leaders never bothered to look into Jesus' uh, birth because what did they say he was? Jesus of Nazareth. In their mind, he could not be the Messiah because they kept going, he's Jesus of Nazareth because he was raised in Nazareth, but they, if they had looked just a little deeper, they would have found out that he's actually Jesus of Bethlehem and been able to know that he w could be the Messiah that he claimed to be. But in their mind, they did not look. This is something we have to be careful about. When we look at these things, are we looking at the complete story or are we just seeing what we think we see? We as humans have a, a bad capacity to just take things as how we think we see them or how we want to see them instead of finding out what the truth is. And, you know, this happens all the time. It happens in the political, political battles where, where we have very short memories as the most part, where we can't remember what somebody said three years ago, four years ago, six years ago, you know, you know what they said. And we believe anything that somebody says bad about somebody else without checking it out. And we've got to be able to, to start looking and saying, God, what is the depth? What is the truth? You know, and this was hard. The, the Jewish leaders looked at Jesus and said, you're from Nazareth. You can't be the Messiah. Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. Well, if they had just looked a little closer. <laughs> and it's kind of div interesting because they'd come from Nazareth to Bethlehem, to Egypt, back to Bethlehem. So as far as they were concerned, he was a Nazarene. He was not born in Bethlehem. But he was actually born in Bethlehem and filled the trip to, to Egypt as well so that he was called out of Egypt. So we need to be able to look and say, God, what do you say completely about something? And this is something that's very interesting. I love talking to people about doctrinal, doctrinal discussions and stuff because it's very fun. Sometimes they challenge me to think through some of the things I have never thought about. Sometimes I try to challenge them to think through things that they have not thought about. But you know, we need to look. What do we believe? Why do we believe it? And know it fully. If we find a scripture that doesn't match a doctrine that we believe, then we need to examine it and find out, is my doctrine wrong or am I misinterpreting the new verse that I'm reading? Very simple. One of the two... My interpretation of the new verse is wrong or my interpretation of my doctrine is wrong? And then I have to be, go to God and say, God, which one, which one is it? And then help me figure out if my doctrine's wrong, I've then got to figure out what, how to fix it and what is correct. And this is very important. This is one of the reasons that we kind of want exposure to other people, just so we can be challenged to think about what it is we believe. Because otherwise, if we just stick around the same group of people our entire life will believe exactly what we've always believed and whether it's right or not won't, won't matter in one sense because I'm with a group of people that all agree, all, all agree with me and that's a dangerous place to be I like to get challenged I like to have to defend what I believe because it makes me think some of my discussions out at the prison I sometimes will talk with the chaplains and there's different denominations out there and represented and it gets to be interesting sometimes when people throw out something and you can discuss it back and forth a little bit and just have a little conversation a fun conversation why do you believe what do you believe how come why do you believe that how does that fit in with this scripture 
And they'll do that back to me. You know, well, you believe this, what about this scripture? Well, that's an interesting scripture. I'm going to have to think about that one and go out and do some research. And this is the fun thing. Paul says, you know about this. You know that he's coming. He's not going to come as a thief in the night. Now, he, he still have the labor pain, but the, we know that a thief is coming, you're, you're on guard. You turn on your alarm system, you, you're, you're sleeping lighter, whatever it might be, you're ready. He says, we are not going to be caught unaware. We're going to be looking around us and seeing the times they are changing. We, we see the things happening and say, Jesus, you're coming. And this is why we're, we're hearing this constant drum roll Without a revival, we are at the end, end days. How close? I don't know. But we are, without a major revival, looking at this. But you know, this isn't the first time the world has been on the edge of, of craziness either. America in the 1600s was considered a terrible, wild country that wasn't worth living in. And we're not just talking because it was wilderness. We're talking the people themselves were irreverent, were non, non-religious, they had fallen so far from, from their, the settler, the pilgrims and the, and the church planters that came to America, and we were terrible. The Wild West really was a wild place to be where people were vicious, and murder happened all the time, and the strong survived and the weak died. All right, Our country has had several times, and it's existence that it has not been a very nice place to be and now we're in a place where it's not a nice place to be will we have a revival i hope so i'm not not absolutely confident but i'd love to see a revival if not come jesus quickly <laughs> let's get this over with as soon as possible and this is what paul's saying don't be caught unaware when you see all these signs get ready Get ready to see Jesus come through and call us home. He says, you are the children of the light in verse 5, and the children of the day, you are not of the night nor of darkness. Let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. And this is very interesting. I talk to so many people that don't know God, and they are totally asleep at the wheel. They don't see what's coming. They don't see what's happening. Uh, I was reading an article just today. It was talking about how uh, the left needs to take lessons from the Christian, Christian right because of how adamant we are about what we believe. And, you know, but they kept downplaying the God side of it. Why are we adamant about what we believe is because God says it's truth. We do not have this wishy-washy sand that we're building our life on so that we don't include which means that we can't include everybody in our in our group we can't include you know uh, all these things we can't say that these people are right when they're wrong because God is the one who says they're wrong now on the other side they're willing to do anything say anything be anything do you know accept anybody as long as they're not critical of the way they live they'll be okay with what they they do which gives them a very very uh, soft uh, foundation to build on because ultimately even though they're saying one thing there is no human being out there that truly believes that somebody that disagrees with them is right even if they're trying to walk on there's no absolute truth they cannot ultimately believe it because they know it doesn't stand up you know, I, I asked more than one professor who was saying there was no absolute truth and I go is that an absolute statement you know, is that an absolute? Is it an absolute truth that there is no absolute truth? You know, and that really throws them because it's a logical contradiction. For them to say there is no tr- absolute truth is an absolute statement of the of a fact that absolute truth does not exist. And it it blows people's mind. And and we know for a fact that there is no buddy who believes that there is no absolute truth. They may try to deny it. It may have been taught to them so they think they believe it but they really know that there is truth, at least truth as far as they're concerned. And this is something that we are faced with every day. As Christians, we put our truth in God. 
and say, God, you are our truth. This allows us to have morality. This allows us to have a place to anchor what we believe. And this is something that is happening. The more we get away from God's truth, the crazier things get. When the Supreme Court decided that homosexual marriage was, was okay, or at least not, uncon uh, not constitutional, uh, unconstitutional, everybody and their brother started hitting the courts with, well, if that's okay, then you know, how about marrying children or marrying my animals or marrying my, or marrying my own children or having multiple, multiple spouses? All of these things hit the courts. They're not making the news as big as the first one did, but they're out there. Why? Because we said there is no, there is no absolute standard. If there is no absolute standard, who makes the standard? In America, supposedly, the Supreme Court makes the absolute standard, not the people. Uh, but, you know, God has already given us an absolute standard. Marriage is between one man, one wife. Period. That's what he's wanted. That's what, he's, that's what he said. Now, yes, there are examples of polygamy in the Bible. Great news about polygamy, every one of them had problems. <laughs> every time somebody had more than one wife, they had, they had problems in their life. That's not God's standard. And so we see all these things that happen and God is saying you are children of the light you know truth and if you're in the light you can't be surprised yeah. if you're going to be attacked it's not going to be in a well-lit room or a well-lit road in most cases I mean, you might have somebody do a vicious military assault on you but you know most attacks and assaults happen in a darkened room or a dark alley or a dark road or a secluded road where nobody's at because people, uh, evil likes darkness. It doesn't want to be seen. And this is the, the hard part that we have. And he's saying, don't let us go to sleep. This world is not our home. We're not to be put to sleep. And we are to watch and be sober or vigilant. We're to look around and see what's going on. The world likes to tell us, you know, say that, it, that we Christians, you guys are just a bunch of uh, uh, easy pushovers because you love people and you're kind to people. You're just a bunch of pushovers. There's nothing really pushover about following God because sometimes God says, don't do something. You know, don't, don't help this person. Don't, don't, and he opens up our eyes and it shows us uh, the magician's trick, you know, there's many times when I've been talking to somebody and they're trying to maneuver me into a bad place and, I, and God just opens up my eyes and I see exactly where they're going and wh what they're trying to do. And it is just like watching a magician who's, do, who's a bad magician and you see, you see this thing hidden behind their hand and you know, they're trying to do sleight of hand and you're watching it hide down their hand or, or pull in their sleeve from the rubber band you know, and, then, and you're going, wow, I saw all of that. God will open our eyes if we're watchful and praying so that we're not taken advantage of. And you know, the good news is even when we are taken advantage of, God still knows that we did it for the right reason, so it's still not a problem. But he's saying be watchful, be uh, sober or vigilant. Verse 7 says, For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that are drunken are drunken in the night. Now, Paul is being a little naive on the drunken part because even in his days there were drunkenness in, during the day. But for the most part, when people drink, they drink at night. And then they go to work and whatever else they have to do during the daytime and maybe drink a little bit, but they're not usually falling down drunk during the daytime unless they are absolutely 100% <laughs> uh, drunk, drunkard. And then even then, they're still drinking more at night than they do during the daytime when everybody else is there to buy them their drinks and, and help support them. Uh, but he's saying, what he's saying here is evil likes to be hidden. This is something that is true. Yes, we know that people steal during the daytime. They'll drink during the daytime. Bad things happen during the daytime. But it's nothing like at night. Parents will tell their kids, you do not need to be out at 11, 12, 1, 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. Nothing good happens in those hours of the morning out, outside your house. You probably should be asleep in your house, much less, you know. 
But you don't go out during those hours because that's when things happen. In the very least, you'll be at the wrong place at the wrong time and get caught up in bad things. You know, and that happens to a lot of teenagers. Maybe they weren't in the middle of what was doing it, but they were at the wrong place when they were supposed to be at home in bed <laughs> and they were in the wrong place and bad things happened to them. And this is what we find. In the night, in the darkness, bad things happen. And God is out there. He says, I am light. He brings light into the situations. He goes, let us, in verse 8, who are in of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and, the, and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So here's another place where Paul starts talking about the armor of God. He's always talking about putting on God, the breastplate of righteousness. In this case, he uses faith and of love. Uh, this also came out of Isaiah, where Isaiah talked about putting on the armor of God. This is not an uncommon description for God to use to say, put me on because I'm your defense. All right? Every time we look at this, what is faith? What is love? That comes from God. God protects us. In Ephesians 6, what he tells us to put on the whole armor of God, every one of those pieces of the armor, the righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the gospel of peace, the shoes of, of uh, the gospel, of the preparation of the gospel, all of those are Jesus. And we take the shield of faith, which comes by hearing of God's word, which is Jesus. Everything about our defense is Jesus. Paul says it in many places that we put on Christ, which is the same thing as putting on the armor, and that we are in Christ. So all of this comes down to our stand with God is in him. And in the Old Testament, it says that God is our buckler, he's our shield, he's our strong tower, he's our fortress. Now, all these beautiful verses that say that we are in him. And he is our protector. And this is why it is so wonderful to walk with God. He is my protector. I don't have a thing to worry about because he is not going to let anything happen to me that he hasn't got a plan for. Now, I might not like his plan. I might not think that his plan is so good, but it is. I mean, in the moment, I may not like and think his plan's good. But... I hold on to it, God, you've got a plan. And always his plan works out to be what's best. And that's his promise, that he has a plan for us. He knows our ways. He knows who we are. He knows our innermost being. And he has a plan for us that is perfect. Now, again, when we're in the middle of that plan, we're not necessarily thinking that plan is so perfect. When we're being beat up and beat down and we feel miserable and we're having a pity party like Elijah did, did when, you know, after Carmel and many other people have done, we don't really feel that great during that period of time. When everything's going wrong for us, we don't necessarily feel that it's good at that moment. When our best friend you know, uh, drops us like a hot potato and we move someplace else and we lose our job and, every, and our house burns down and our car breaks down, we're not feeling like we're in a very good place. And God says, I still have a good plan for you. We need to hold on to it. In spite of what we feel, we need to hold on to his plan. And then he says, verse 9, For God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Wrath, punishment, hell. Hell was created for Lucifer and the fallen angels. Man was not designed to go there, but man's sin in the Garden of Eden and ever since has God saying, hell is your destiny without me. And he says, we that have Christ in us are not destined for wrath. We're not destined for the tribulation period when God is pouring out his judgment upon Israel and upon the world. His wrath falls on his, not on his children. God will discipline us, but his wrath does not fall on us. 
And discipline is hugely different than wrath. Uh, you know, I've told people, if you enjoy spanking your children, you should never spank your children because you should not be enjoying it. My dad used to say, this hurts me more than it hurts you. And I'm going, sure, right, dad. And then when I had to spank my children, it's like, I now know what he's saying. I did not want to hurt my children. I knew that they needed the spanking to help them understand for future. And God understands sometimes he has to do things that seem to hurt us so that he can teach us. Discipline always involves a pain, whether it's physical or emotional. Discipline keeps us from wanting to do something again. And the pain has to be sufficient enough to make us think, no, I don't want to go through that punishment again. And the world is going to go through God's wrath. And his wrath is to try to call them back to him. But we already know what's going to happen when God's wrath falls. It's all going to be blamed on all kinds of stuff. You know, I have really come to the conclusion that most of the West Coast is probably under these fires because God is saying, turn back to me. And what are we hearing people go, oh, it's all about global warming. It's all about this. It's all. Granted, that may be part of it. It's getting warmer and drier. That's God's wrath too. All right. So we have to look at that. We're also in a cycle of warming. So that's not even, that is not even a problem. It's an 800 year cycle from warm to warm with about 400 getting to the low side and then 400 getting back to the high side. We can look through history back every 400 years and see these events that say it was cold here, go back 400, cold, go back 400, cold. We can do the same thing for the heat. It was hot here, it was really hot here, it was really hot here. And we can go back through history and see all of, these, all of these events. There was a time when the best wines and grapes were grown in Scotland. All right? For the last six, seven hundred years, you couldn't grow a grape in Scotland outside of, the, outside of a greenhouse. It's starting to get warmer. Will there have a time when the best grapes can grow in Scotland again? Quite possibly. You know, uh, Leif Erikson found the Hudson Valley, he said it's the perfect environment with almost year-round perfect weather conditions. Growing seasons. Not in this pit, not in our day. You know, we have this ebb and flow of the seasons. It's not new. Nothing new under the sun. This, this apparent global warming is not something man-made. Is it exasperated by man? Possibly. You know, we put enough smoke and pollution in the air that we might make this one a little worse than, than some of the other ones. But they've been here off and on all through history. And so we want to look in this whole idea that we need to look back at history. The saddest thing is people do not know history. They rewrite history all over the place. Uh, and we need to be careful. Look at what things happen. Look at what actually is happening. And be able to look at God and say, God, you haven't appointed us to wrath. When his wrath falls on this world, we'll be gone. We'll be gone. We'll be enjoying our marriage supper with the Lamb, with Jesus. Jesus paid for his bride 2,000 years ago, and he's waiting to get his bride up there in heaven to have his supper so that he can have the consummation of his marriage and be finished with it. He's been waiting a long time by our standards. Not from God's standards, it hasn't been that long, but by our standards, he's been waiting a long time for this, for this completion of the marriage. And in, I, in Revelation, we're told that part of the thing that's going on in heaven during that period of time is the marriage supper of the Lamb. He's taken his bride, and he's having a big party. Now, we know from Hebrew weddings that the party, the marriage supper, is seven days. Perfect fit in seven, seven years. You know, that a day and a year, you know, as far as God's concerned. So we will end up with a seven-year party. Now, I've never been in a seven-year party. <laughs> I've heard of parties that have lasted days, a couple of them for weeks. I've never been in one. <laughs> I can't imagine what a seven-year party is going to be like in heaven. Uh, and God is, God is the one who's throwing it. 
It will be a lavish party. It'll be something that we can't even, even begin to fathom. Food, entertainment, activities, uh, those seven days of the marriage, marriage of a Jewish family, no, not everybody stayed there all seven days. People were in and out the whole time, but they enjoyed a feast for seven days. We get to have a feast with God for seven years. Yeah. And God's throwing the feast. <laughs> That's gonna be quite a party. Uh, and then he says, for verse uh, 10, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, that we should live together with him. This is the beauty of our eternal salvation. We accept Jesus Christ, and we get to dwell with him while we're alive. And the day we die physically, our body just transitions from our body into God's presence. Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And this is what he said. We get to walk with him whether we live or whether we die, we are with him. I love being able to walk with God and having him guide and lead and know that he is in control of everything that's going on in, in my life and that around me. And knowing that one day I'll step out of this body into his presence. And you know, when I step out of my body into his presence, I want people to have a good, good, happy time. I went home. You know, and this is one of the things I've shared with people. You know, I do not believe that the people in heaven are looking down on us with great longing and care. They're in heaven. I think they have eyes for one thing, Jesus. You know, and the ones that are one out ahead of them, they've got eyes there. If that's if true, like they say that, that you're, met, you're met by your family, it's Jesus going, uh, you've got to go to the Golden Gates. Uh, your, your, your son, your grandson, your, your, your daughter, your, your niece, your nephew, they're coming up today, so you go, you go greet them. Uh, because there's nothing but joy in heaven. Can you imagine trying to look at this earth from heaven's perspective? Your imperfection get to look at all the stupidity that happens down here. Why would they be doing that, God? Well, they think they're doing the right thing, but... You know, they're, they're just not in my perfect will. They're, they're doing okay. They're, they think they're doing good. You know, I can't imagine what it would be like from the heaven's perspective to look at this earth and the evil and the bad and the people that are doing what they think is right even though it's wrong. How many times do we do the wrong thing and, you know, thinking that we're doing the right thing? We're serving you, God. And God says, yeah, but I wanted you over here serving me, not, not doing whatever it is you're doing over there. Uh, you know, and all of this goes on and it says we live with him whether we live or he says sleep or dead so I'm living with God he's managing every part of my life he's in control of my life and if I die he's still in control of my life because I went to be spending it with him this is the beauty of what we have whether I live or die he is in control and it is him blessing us. And we need to get this whole idea. And there are too many people who believe that eternal life starts the day you die. Eternal life started because Jesus is eternal life. And he says, when you've accepted me, I come and live in you. So we have eternal life living in us the moment we accept Jesus Christ. We are made one with him and eternal life starts. This is one of the big reasons why you can't lose your salvation. Eternal life lives in you, and it's eternal. All right, God, I want you out. Sorry, you, you, you moved in, and I don't want you anymore. And that's what some people say. You, you can choose to get rid of him. But that would mean that God lied to us. He gave us eternal life. I can choose to ignore him. I can choose to try to push him back into a back closet, back bedroom, and try to run my own life. But he's there. He has made me his. I have been adopted. I have been put in the righteousness of Christ, whether I like it or not, once I've made that, made that decision. I'm not getting out of it. Now, I might get to heaven and be miserable because I don't have a lot of rewards and going, okay, now, 
all right, now I've got to learn all about you in heaven. No, I'd rather learn about, all about him while I'm in this world. Get to know him. That way I can continue to get to know him. I am not one of those that believe we learn everything there is to know about God and, and Jesus when we get to heaven. I think we're going to be learning for all of eternity up, up in heaven. Because learning is too much part of life. It really is. Uh, if you want to see somebody die, especially an older person, watch them just vegetate in front of the TV and, don't, and stop learning. Stop doing. Stop learning new skills. They die quickly. They die physically because they're just getting lazy. They die in their thought processes. They need, we need to be challenged. We need to keep learning. And because it's so important here on earth, I really think it's one of those things that will continue in heaven. That we will spend eternity learning. Because God is greater than we are. When we get to heaven, we're not God. He's always going to be greater than we are. So he's going to have things for us to learn for all of eternity is my belief. Now, I can't prove it other than, you know, just because I think that's, but I do know we're not God. And if we're not God, that gives us something we can learn. And so we will be learning, I really do believe, for all of eternity. And this is very important for us to understand as we go through there. All of this, Paul goes in verse 11, Wherefore, comfort yourselves to, together and edify one another even as you do. So here again, Paul is praising them. You guys are edifying. You're comforting one another. You know, this is the good news that we have. When we have a Christian brother or sister who's really down and, and not having it, you're, you're God's child. You're not appointed to wrath. He's got good things for you. I have, I have an individual at the prison that I'm always trying to encourage because he is so down on himself. He's so worried because he, goes, he obviously goes to a church that preaches that you can lose your salvation, and he's afraid that he has lost his salvation because he just doesn't have the joy of his salvation. And I've tried helping him over and over. We go to the scriptures. I show him scriptures and go, don't, this is not, but I don't know that I did. You know, don't worry about it. It's not you. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he has saved us. You know, not by work, you know, for by grace are you saved by faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. We cannot do enough good things to prove that we are saved, ever. Now, we can live a good lifestyle. We can have fruit that shows that we probably are saved. But you know what? All of us know, if we really want to analyze our own life, we know that we don't always make the good decisions for the right reasons. We don't always make the decisions just because God says so. We sometimes do it so that the people in the church think better of us. You know, that may not be what we're going to tell people. Uh, but, you know, we're going, I don't want anybody, what would the church people say if they actually knew that this is how I acted or what I did? Can't, can't do that. You know, we've got to be careful. Our whole motive should be because of God. And true growth comes when maybe I do the right thing, but I'm still upset with myself because I thought the wrong thing. This is where real problems come into it. And even then, we cannot get introspective about it because God is growing us. I can't sit around and kick myself around because my thoughts aren't right. Or I didn't, didn't do things perfectly. I must look and say, I'm getting better. Each year is better. Each day is better. Each month is better. Each decade is better. And God, I'm becoming more like you with each passing period of time. Will we have setbacks? Of course, we're human beings. We have a sinful nature. Jesus did not take and rip our sinful nature out of us when we got saved. He's crucifying it daily, but he did not just rip it out of us. Okay, you don't have no more sin. You're going to be perfect from this point on. It might be fun to have had that happen. But you know, we live in this world. It might not have been fun at all. What did they do to Jesus? He was perfect. They had no reason not to like him, and he was harassed everywhere he went. So maybe it's a blessing in disguise that God didn't strip out our, our sin nature completely until we learn to grow and, and trust him more and, and, and change the way we think. Uh, you know, it's kind of strange to think that the sin nature might be a blessing, but it, 
but it could be. Because look what they did to Jesus. They put him on a cross and harassed him for his entire, you know, his entire four years of ministry. And we get harassed. The closer we draw to God, the more we become like him, we start getting harassed. But the good news is as God strips out the, the sin nature, he puts himself more and more into us so that we don't miss. And we can get to the point maybe where we're ready to go, Father, forgive them as they're stoning us. Father, forgive them as they're putting us on a cross. Father, forgive them as they're burning us at the stake. Father, forgive them as, as they're getting ready to take our head off with the sword. We need to be able to get to that point, and that takes growth. And that is why God puts us through hard times. You know, he puts us through some hard times so that we learn to trust him. So that when we go through some really big hard times, we go, all right, God, you've been faithful. I guess you're going to be faithful in this one too. I don't see how, don't know why, but you're going to be faithful. All the people in Fox's Book of Martyrs would have been probably looking at it the same way. God, uh, I, you know, I really thought I was supposed to write the Bible. Wycliffe, I was supposed to, I really wanted to translate the entire Bible. All I got was the New Testament. Why are you going to let these people put me on the, burn, burn me at the stake? Now it doesn't record that he questioned it, but you have to understand that somewhere in the back of his mind was, God, I was, I'm really trying to serve you. I want the Bible written in the language of the people. Why am I going to, why am I going to, the, to be burned to the stake? I'm in the middle of this project. God finished the project anyway. Now, did he know it at the time? No. Do we know what's coming our way when we, get, when we have to suffer? No. Do we know all the people that we're touching when we suffer? Not usually. We might know a handful of them, but we don't know all of the people that are being touched. Stephen is stoned. Who's in the audience? Saul of Tarsus. We know that it made an impact on him because he talks about it later on. It made an impact on him. Now granted, seeing Jesus and being knocked off his horse was a big part of it too, but he was already, how could somebody say forgive them when they're dying? The centurion at the foot of Jesus' cross, when Jesus said forgive them, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And it is finished, you know, and, he's, and the peacefulness and the love that he showed, he looked up at him and said, this surely is the Son of God. Wycliffe burned at the stake, praising God. Many of these Christians were burned at the stake and they were singing praises to God as they were burned at the stake. Drawn and quartered, pulled in four different directions by animals and praising God as they're getting ready to be, be, be torn, torn apart. These things touched people's hearts. Recently, you know, recently, I guess it's been 15, 20 years, 15 years now, the Coptic Christians were killed in Egypt on the beach by the, by the Islamic people singing praises to God and praying. People saw that and going, there's something more to what they believe. People don't die for things they don't believe and when they do die people take notice of them because they're going I don't understand it because there are a lot of people in this world that have nothing that they're willing to die for a lot of people have nothing they're willing to die for we as Christians should be ready willing and able to die for God if that's what God calls us to do and if he does he's going to give us the grace to do it and this is what Paul is saying Admonish one another, be, be edifying one another, comfort one another with these words. God is in charge. And this is the beautiful thing. This is what comforts me all the time. When I grab hold of Romans 8.28, what, what I'm also looking at is, God, you're in charge, you're sovereign, because otherwise you wouldn't be able to make this promise. All things work together for good, God, and, I, and I'm honest, you know, there's times when I talk to God, God, God I'm gonna, I, I believe your verse, but I sure don't understand how this can be for my good. And that's not a problem. As long as I'm not lacking the faith to understand that God is going to make it good, I could even be criping, God, <laughs> you're going to have to show me how this is going to be good because I have a hard time understanding it. But you know, there's not a problem with saying and being honest to God. 
God, I need your help. Yea, though I walk through the shadow of the valley of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. You anoint my head. You make my table in the presence of my enemies. God gives us peace in the midst of our enemies. He anoints us. He walks us. You know, and you, you really think about Psalm 23. God, you're all, your enemies are surrounding you and, you, and God puts a table and gives you a feast in the midst of your enemies. How could you feast in the midst of your enemies? You have to be at peace that somebody even bigger is protecting you. This is our God. We need to have that kind of trust in him. God, you are God and you can keep me. If you want to take me home, I'm ready to go home. If you want me to suffer, I'm ready to suffer. If you want to bless me, I'm really ready to be blessed. But you know, but, you know any one of those is God. Go home, stay, go through suffering. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego looks to look at Nebuchadnezzar and he says, who can save you? And I go, they go, our God can save us, but whether he does or doesn't, we will not bow. They were ready. God, you're perfectly, you know, I think when they went into that fire, they fully expected to be standing in God's presence. Not the way it happened. <laughs> they were expecting to be leaving their body and going into heaven. They got to stand in God's presence. And you know, most of the time when we're in great adversity, that's the time for us to look and say, God, you're here. Some of my greatest experiences with God have been when times have been hard. And I know, God, you're right here. You're right here in the midst of this, not literal fiery furnace, but you're right here in this fiery furnace. You're right here in this trial. Stephen looks up and says, Behold, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father. He, he was experiencing Jesus in the midst of the trial. Daniel in the lion's den says, God sent his angel to, to deliver me. There, there's no problem here. All through the scriptures, we see Abraham fighting five armies with his little band of family soldiers and winning. We see... Uh, Gideon going to battle with 300 people and winning. We see Hezekiah going in the, in the battle and God says, you just need to stand here and I'm going to win the battle for you. We've got the other king, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but he's surrounded, Jerusalem surrounded, and God sends one angel to kill 185,000 enemy surrounding the city. You know, we stand with God and he comes into, into our presence and it's a wonderful thing to watch God work when we stand out of the way. And this is the beauty of what happens. God is just asking us, stand out of the way and let me work. Now our human pride usually gets in the way. Well, God, what do I get to do? God says, I told you, just stand here in the back and I will take care of you. Well, God, I've got to do something. And we try to run out and do something. And God then steps back and says, okay, you want to do it? I'll step back and let you get beat up and do it. It is beautiful when we just focus on God and let him be our defender. Let him be our warrior. Let him be our protector. And you know what? You can never go wrong letting God do your work for you. Because that's what he says. He says, I am your defender. I am your protector. I am your fortress. You know, I am your deliverer. I am your savior. And he's saying, just trust in me. And we need to comfort each other with these kind of words. When we see some, a brother or sister having a hard time, we need to really be able to comfort them and say, God is still in control. And sometimes we need that reminder, God is still in control. Uh, because it is tough sometimes to, th to think of God being in control when, all, when everything seems to be spinning out of control. It's hard to think of, God, you're in control. And you know, this is something that's very important for us to understand. Sometimes keeping our head in the midst of all of this stuff is what it takes. Uh, I think I shared with you, I, I tried to walk through a waterfall one time because all my friends were on the other side calling me through. Don't ever try to walk through a waterfall. I got pushed 20 feet down, and I wasn't sure how I was going to get back up against that water coming down. When I finally got to the bottom where there was some ground, I was able to push back up. 
It was fun thereafter, but, uh, but that first time was terrifying. I got caught in a riptide one time, and the idea was you arch your back, come out of the riptide. You know, uh, we have God who says, I am your peace in the middle of the storm. I have you. No matter what we're going through, God has us. He has our back, he has our front, he has our side, he has our top, he has our bottom. He has all of us, all sides of us. The enemy can't do anything without his permission, and he is in full control. And we just need to learn to trust him. And we spend our entire life learning to trust him more and more. And each problem that comes our way pushes it. All right, are you going to trust me in this one? Are you going to trust me in this one? Are you going to trust me in this one? You know, sometimes we fail. Sometimes we pass. But the good news is when we really start learning, God has a plan. It makes things a whole lot easier for us. And then, of course, we have to believe it. And then he will test how well we believe it. But, you know, life gets so much simpler when we just go, God, you have a plan, and I'm going to trust you because you're sovereign. May not like your plan, may not like what I think I'm seeing at the time that it's happening, but I'm going to trust your plan. And life gets a whole lot easier. Doesn't mean there's not a lot any pain. Doesn't mean that there's not hardship. Just means that God has something really good on the other side of it. And if nothing else, he's got something good when we enter into heaven. Because there's no pain, no suffering, and all the rewards for it, what he's or what we've learned on this world. You know, we might have a terrible life on this, on this planet, but if we're his, we've got a great life ahead of us. And I don't even think that life is all that bad for most people here if they pay attention to God. If all they're doing is focusing on the bad that's happening to them, they're going to live miserable. They're going to be miserable all the time. But when we focus that God has a plan, he is good, we live a pretty good life in this, in this lifetime as well. At least I have. And most of the people I know that follow God have lived a pretty good life. Perfect life? Absolutely not. The problem-free life? Absolutely not. But you know, knowing that God is in there in the midst of everything makes everything bearable. Even if you're in a place like Job, where everything is taken away, and you've got friends telling you how bad you are, you can still stay focused on God and say, God, I put my trust in you. I'm not enjoying this days, months, year, whatever it was that he was under all that pressure. But God, you are still God. I am going to put my trust in you. And that is the beauty of being able to follow God, is being able to walk in that trust and know he is what is absolutely trustworthy. Nothing else in this world is absolutely trustworthy. And this is where Solomon was during the, during the book of Ecclesiastes. He says, I tried everything. I put my trust in everything, and nothing worked. And many people know exactly what that is. Put their trust in all kinds of things and find out none of them work. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We ask you to help us to keep our trust and put our trust completely in you because you alone are trustworthy. And we just thank you for all that you've done in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says... The penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10:9-8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? 
Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431.